Hey, it's Sean from the Afternoon Cruise. Thanks for checking out our podcast. I want to play you the extended interview with Scotty Barnhart, trumpet player and leader of the Count Basie Orchestra. In addition to talking about the Count Basie Orchestra, I also caught up with Scotty to find out about the book he wrote about trumpet players, found out if what I thought I understood about jazz band from my time in the jazz band in high school at St. Paul Central was correct, and I found out what trumpet player and what musician Scotty thinks is the most important one in the entire history of jazz. Listen on. And enjoy. It's the afternoon cruise. I'm Sean McPherson, and I'm on the phone with Scotty Barnhart, who's coming through town tomorrow as the leader of the Count Basie Orchestra. They got two shows on the books at Crooners, a 4 p.m. show and a 7 p.m. show. There are limited tickets still available for the 4 p.m. show. Mr. Barnhart, thank you so much for joining the afternoon cruise. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, if I understand correctly, you have a longer history with the Count Basie Orchestra than just your time as the leader and musical director. Can you tell me how you got started with the Count Basie Orchestra? Yeah, I got a call in 1993, January 1993, uh, from Frank Foster, who was, uh, at that time, he was the uh, director. And Foss, of course, joined Basie in 1952-53, and he was there for about 10 years, and he wrote great, you know, uh, hits that became hits for the orchestra, Shiny Stockings and Blues and Horses Flat. So he had um, become the director in 1986, I think it is. And he called me up one day and said I had been highly recommended for the orchestra. And of course, I thought it was a joke, <laughs> but but it was real. And uh, now I've been there almost it'll be 30 years in January. For a, uh, an orchestra that has a legacy and a name attached to it, but the name that person has been deceased for a long time, how do you make sure, both for yourself as the leader, as the trumpet player in the group, and even speaking on behalf of previous leaders, how do you make sure to both innovate while also following the footsteps of Count Basie and making sure that you do with the orchestra what perhaps he would have wanted to some extent? Well, the main thing is just knowing the entire history of the orchestra. That, and I've always been a fan of it, even when I was in high school. So I was always you know, buying every album I could get and eventually every CD I could get and just studying the orchestra from 1935 all the way up till today. So by the time I became leader uh, eight years ago, I knew so much of the history I could write a book on. It. I mean, literally. And I just I, I made it a point to understand every section in the band, how it evolved over the years. You know, how the trombone section, for example, went from three trump from two trombones to three, then three to four. And uh, and just how the saxophones went from four to five and and how they, how each section leader brought a different way of style to the orchestra and how Mr. Basie put it all together and had it, you know, um, uh, just running smoothly. So it's just, it just a matter of really knowing the history of it. So when we do new things today or new arrangements today, uh, I know exactly what works and what doesn't work. And the guys know, too. And uh, so it's just been one of those situations where you just have to pay pay very close attention to detail. I mean, very, very specific detail. And that's kind of how I make sure we're doing what we need to do. You're with the Afternoon Cruise. I'm on the phone with Scotty Barnhart, the leader of the Count Basie Orchestra. They're coming through town for two shows on Thursday. 4 p.m. show, tickets still available, and a sold-out 7 p.m. show. Those are both happening over at Crooners. Scotty, you've been studying Count Basie's music for decades now. What have you gleaned? What lessons have you gleaned from Count Basie's musicianship and his leadership? Well, the most important thing I've learned from Basie is that you have to be a nice person and you have to treat your musicians as human beings first. First and foremost, this is about the human connection, not a musical connection. You have to have a human-to-human -human connection with the people that you work with, 
and then you'll get to whatever music you need to get to or whatever art or whatever innovations you may, you know, try to do or whatever. But it's all about the people. And Mr. Basie, uh, everybody always wanted to work for him because he was such a nice guy. He treated everybody the same. He never uh, was too busy to, to, to lend a hand or, you know, say a few words or just talk or whatever it may have been, you know. So it's all, it, to me, it always, and it's very simple to me, it's always about the human connection. Even if you are, you know, a football coach or something or a basketball coach, you have to get along with people. You have to make sure your players or the people that are working for you get along and respect each other as men or women and human beings, then you can do whatever your task is. So that's one of the main things I think, um, Mr. Basie, and I think really, quite frankly, is why the orchestra is still around, because he made sure that, um, you know, that he had a happy band. He's, he was quoted as saying, a happy band is a great band. Right. So he made sure that the musicians always were uh, treated as people first and then music second. Now, just one thing I want to mention twice, you mentioned the wrong date. You mentioned Sunday. We're playing Thursday. Oh, you oh. You did that twice. <laughs> well, you know what, Mr. Barnhart? I appreciate that. I had a little bit of the problem of the save as as opposed to save on my document prep. And I, I had some questions for another person on this sheet, and I was going, I hope I got the right date. So let's make sure we get this right. You are playing on Thursday over at Crooners. My sincere apologies, Mr. Barnhart. Oh, no problem. No problem. Yeah, I heard it twice. I just want to make sure it's not Sunday. It's Thursday, July 21st. In just in two days from now. Well, yeah, and, and you guys are, are, are on the road big time because uh, where are you playing? I believe the night before you're going to be playing in St. Louis, Missouri or something uh, like that? St. Louis, Missouri for a private event, and then we come to Minneapolis, and then we fly to uh, San Francisco the next day. So, yeah, we're getting back on the road, man. You know, of course, COVID shut uh, just about everything down for a couple of years for everybody, but we're slowly but surely getting back on tour, and it's just great. This tour coming up is about two and a half weeks, and we have a recording session we're doing right at the end of the tour, which is going to be something totally totally new that the orchestra has never done before. As a matter of fact, never in the history of music has this been done before what we're about to do. So we're really excited about that. And, you know, and we got uh, going back to Europe in the fall and other dates in the fall. So we're getting back to the swing of things. Well, now, that's quite a tease. What are you doing in the recording studio that has never been done before? <laughs> we are doing a Delta Blues recording, man. This music, the Count Basie Orchestra playing the music of the Delta Blues, oh. Muddy Waters, Robert Dunn, that's never been done before. And, uh, yeah, it's never been done before. So we're all set to go. we got some great special guests, and we are ready to go, man. With with music out of the Delta area, a lot of times when I learned that music, you'd be, oh, this is a 14-bar blues, or, oh, this is a, a really irregular <laughs> pattern, or Sunhouse always puts a measure of seven and a half right here. Um, how, how are you navigating that with the orchestra? Are you kind of bringing things more into a 4-4 kind of setting, or are you letting some of those idiosyncrasies out? Well, most of it is four four, but there is one tune that we're doing that is a nine bar blues, you know. And we have about seven or eight special guests, you know, guitarists, and I don't want to give the name away, but everybody knows who they are. But so I just I just chose some music that I thought would be great, and I have um, a couple of arrangers, in, including myself, that are arranging the charts to make sure they fit and they all stay around three minutes. They can't be too long, you know, three or four minutes. But the sound of the electric guitar uh, wailing over the Count Basie Orchestra is something that is just going to be it's going to be unbelievable. Well, you and, know, uh, that sounds that sounds really, really exciting. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I was sort of like, oh, man, there, everything's been done in a recording studio before, but I can't no. really think of a big band tackling that no. songbook. So that's very, very cool I've stuff. Never done before, yeah. And basically what happened three years ago, Basie was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. So I had to go to Memphis, Tennessee to accept the award on his behalf and make a little speech. And while I was there, 
I was surrounded by all of these great blues musicians, and that's when it dawned on me. I said, this is, this is what we need to be doing. And so now it's been three years in the planning stages. Studio was booked. The, the arrangements are written. The artists are confirmed, and we are ready to go, man. Well, this is just such excellent news and so excited that the Count Basie Orchestra is back out on the road. You guys are playing yeah. on Thursday over at Crooners, yeah. uh, and that's really, really great that you guys will be gracing that stage and so glad you're coming to Minnesota. Um, if you don't yeah. mind, Scotty, I'd love to ask you like two questions about your writing about trumpet and your you know study of yeah. the instrument before I let you go for that. Does that work for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I got sort of one amateur question about when I first joined jazz band when I was in high school that I, I think mm-hmm. might elicit a little bit more of an answer from you and then I also just want to know about your book but right when I got into jazz band I was a bass player but I'd always played in small combos then I joined the jazz band um, and they mm-hmm. said the hotshot soloist is going to be the second trumpet player the highest <laughs> note hitter is going to be the first trumpet player and they were sort of yeah. explaining you're going to find maybe yeah. the the more artsy reflective kid is going to be sitting in seat number two because he's actually going to explore the scales but the person with the lungs of steel is going to be in seat number one you're a professional you teach trumpet you've yeah. written a book about trumpet is is that yeah. accurate advice and then how did that come to be what's the history of that yeah, well, that's that's pretty that's pretty accurate. I mean, traditionally, that's how it's always been. I mean, the guy who plays first trumpet or the lead trumpet chair has most of you know all of the high notes, and uh, and so he doesn't take that many solos because his 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 chops are usually too fatigued from having to play you know the lead stuff. That that's why they give those solos usually to the second trumpet player. But I have to say this: in the Count Basie Orchestra, and in most of the orchestras that I know of, the parts are are passed around. So, for example, in the lead, in the second, in the second chair, he may not play second on every part. I played second in the orchestra too, but I had <clears throat> I also had to play some lead to give the lead player a rest. So, in my second book, ninety percent of those parts would be second, but there would be some third parts. There'd be maybe even a fourth part, you know. And in the third chair, he might have a lead part too, or he might have a second part. So, in the Count Basie orchestra. And in most really good orchestras, the parts are shared. They're passed around. Not one chair plays only that part. I always stress this to high school band directors, and especially the college band directors. Spread the parts around. Never have the lead player playing all lead all the time. Never have the second player playing all second all the time. Because what happens if somebody gets sick the night before the concert? If nobody's played lead on anything, you're in trouble. So the, so we, we, we spread the parts around. We spread them around, and I know they do the same thing in the Duke Ellington Orchestra. They do the same thing in the Lincoln Center Orchestra. So you have a much more of a balanced section, and much more of a section that can that has great a better endurance. It'll last longer that way, and it plus it keeps everybody from being bored. If they know that the third player knows he's going to play lead on at least one tune, that's exciting, man. And if the lead player knows, well, I can I, I can play fourth on this, I can rest on this ballad, and let the fourth player play lead on the ballad, then that's good for him or her too. So in the Count Basie Orchestra, we balance that out. But traditionally, you're right, that's kind of how it started. And that's how most people still set up like that. But my advice is to anybody who can do anything about it, make sure the parts are balanced. Spread the love around. Well, spreading the love around sounds like something you're a student of and sounds like Count Basie was certainly a student of that as well. Yeah. Um, open-ended question. You, you wrote a book about trumpet. You're probably in the company of maybe under 1,000 people who have you know published books on the topic of the trumpet, even though it's obviously a storied instrument. As a lifelong trumpet player, what did you learn when you actually sat down to start writing some of this stuff? Man, what I learned was that you, I can learn from everybody. 
and you know, when I started working on this book, I mean, I, I had no intentions of really writing a book. I was on the road with pianist Marcus Roberts back in 1990, 89, 90. And we were doing a uh, concert at Georgia State University, and they asked me to give a master class on jazz trumpet. But in order to do that, I have to be able to demonstrate to the class the entire lineage of the jazz trumpet, meaning I have to start at the very beginning, Buddy Bolden from New Orleans, go all the way up through Louis Armstrong, through Dizzy Gillespie, through Miles, Clifford Brown, Freddie Hubbard, all the way up to Winston, and talk about, but more importantly, demonstrate what they did. So that's what I was doing. I was doing that. And luckily for me at that time, I had already met and you know was friends with Freddie Hubbard and Nat Adderley, Dizzy Gillespie, Winston, Clark Terry, a bunch of these great trumpet players. And so when I would talk about them, uh, about what they were doing musically and what they had contributed, I would also intersperse my own personal, you know, little anecdotes with them. Like when I met Dizzy for the first time and what Freddie Hubbard and I talked about when we were driving around in my car, stuff like that. So, and it was, it, I just, it just made it more real to the students. And at the end of it, in the Q&A, I got a question. This guy said, well, all of that information is, is great, man, but is any of it written down? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, damn, you know what? No, it isn't. All of the music, all of the all of the information or stories or history from jazz are usually just passed on orally, you know? And I, just, and I thought about it for, you know, a minute or so, and then I didn't really think about it too much. But about two or three months later, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I in, in the middle of the night, man. I said, oh, my God. And so I, so I said, I need to get up and see what I can do about this. And, the, and what I did, I sat down, I, I grabbed a yellow legal pad, and I said, well, i got to start with trumpet players. How many do I know off the top of my head? And I wrote down a bunch of names, and when I counted them, I had 75 names. And that's not bad for sitting up, you know, just thinking of jazz trumpet players. But by the time I was done my research, I had 1,200 names, man. Wow. 1,200 players in the history of jazz trumpet that, uh, contributed in one form or another. Not everybody got a big recording contract. Not everybody put out albums. There were people that sat in orchestras for all many years, never got recorded, never recorded, other than maybe a radio spot here or there. So I had 1,200 names, and that's what started me to work on this book. And uh, when I started interviewing people, because I knew the most important part of the book would be the interviews, directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So I did 21 interviews, Maynard Ferguson, Winton, Freddie Hubbard, Clark Terry, Clara Bryant, a beautiful woman trumpet player. I ended up writing the very first chapter ever written on women jazz trumpet players, which is actually ridiculous when you think about how early jazz history books were written. They totally ignored them, but I corrected that, took care of that. So anyway, it came out in 2005. It's called The World of Jazz Trumpet, and it's published by Hal Leonard. And uh, I tell, I interspersed the history of America. I interspersed the history of the trumpet itself. And, of course, the meat of it, to me, are the interviews. And another teaser, uh, when that came out in 2005, I wasn't done researching. You know, the publisher said, well, let's put out what you have. I was like, man, but I'm not done. They said, well, we got enough. Let's just put this out. So we put it out. And I had done 21 interviews, but we only put in 15. We only published 15. So I had six other interviews, Bobby Shue. Joe Wilder, Warren Bachet, Stepco Goot, Jack Sheldon, all these great trumpet players. And so I said, I need to finish research. And so I made a target of 35 interviews to have. I figured, you know what, if I can get 35 interviews of the greatest jazz trumpet players alive in the last 56 years, that would be great. It'll stand the test of time. Well, I have 52. <laughs> and I'm done. I got everybody that I wanted to get. Players that we played phone that I played phone tag with, and I know all of these people from Doc Stevenson to Chris Bodie to Ingrid Jensen, Claudia Roditi, Wallace Roney, Nicholas Payton, Terrence Blanchard, 
uh, Eddie Henderson, Wadada Leo Smith, Camille Adolifu, uh, all these great Taramasu Hino from Japan. So, man, I'm finished with it. The interviews are being transcribed. And when the new book is done, it'll be out next year, obviously. I think hopefully next year. It'll have 50, 51 interviews, man. And that'll never be duplicated ever, ever, ever again. And luckily for me, I love to interview. I love to research. And it'll be some information in there that is just going to floor people. It'll also be some information in there that's going to make people scratch their head. And, and some information in there might make some people mad. But I didn't edit anything. Whatever they told me, after what I asked them, if I'd ask them a question, if they said something, it's in there. Wow. And it, it'll be so illuminating, man, because I just let them talk. And uh, and lastly, what I did for the interviews, the first three or four questions were very specific towards that particular person's career and their style and that kind of thing. The last three or four were general questions, like almost trivia questions, where I would ask the same question to everybody to get to see what the different answers would be. Yeah. And it's absolutely, absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious, man. So I can't wait for it to be uh, published, you know, next year, when it comes out next year. And uh, and as, like I did with the first one, I'll do a book signing tour. But the difference with the book signing tour with me is that I had a full jazz band in the bookstore. That's what we did. Full jazz. So I could play all of the styles so people could really hear it. And we'll hopefully do the same thing again when this is coming out. If, so you, if you could add a 53rd interview with somebody who's no longer <laughs> with us, you could sit down with uh-huh. one trumpet player who, who's gone on to the next Louis plane of existence. Who would you talk? Louis Armstrong. Okay. Without doubt. Gotcha. Louis Armstrong. But what I did in the first book, I interviewed his bass player, Arville Shaw. That was the closest I could get to Louis Armstrong. I met Arville Shaw and we went to jazz cruise, and Arville was Louis Armstrong's bass player for 25 years. So I said, if I could talk to him, I can ask him some questions that I might get, might even ask Armstrong, and that's what I did. But it would be Louis Armstrong without a doubt, man. Without mm. a doubt, it would be him because he is the most important jazz musician that we have. Period. He's the most important. Not not only this jazz musician in general, but jazz trumpeter. He changed everything, absolutely everything, man. And it would definitely be be him without a doubt. The second person would be would have been Miles. <laughs> 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 he certainly changed a lot of things as well uh, Mr. Barnhart I am so honored that you spent some time talking and the show's coming up on Thursday over at Crooners uh, good luck yeah. on the rest of your trip and thank you for taking time to talk with the afternoon cruise oh, thank, thank you thank you for having me I appreciate it thank you man alright you have a beautiful day sir okay you too man All right.